All right, all right, all right. Now it's time for this morning's message. Uh, time for us to um, jump into the book of Revelation. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Revelation uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. And we're also going to be looking at its corollary in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. These are actually the same vision, um, but uh, they're two different perspectives. They're happening simultaneously. Uh, but let's start with chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is what it says. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would speak mightily to us by the power of your word and spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to believe, minds to understand, and a will to obey. I ask it in Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name. Amen. The book of Revelation, as uh, you know, uh, is organized around seven visions of Jesus. Now we're in week four of this series, and so this is the fourth vision of Jesus that we find in the book of Revelation. The first, he appears as the Son of Man standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands in chapter one. The second, he appears as the Lamb in the center of the throne, of the throne in chapter five. The third, he appears as the child born of the woman in chapter 12. And here he appears as the lamb standing on Mount Zion in chapter 14. Uh, there's really two primary images of Jesus that recur throughout the book of Revelation. The Son of Man and the Lamb. The Son of Man and the Lamb. Uh, one thing that's important for us to understand about the book of Revelation is that there's actually nothing new in it. There's no new theology in the book of Revelation. There's nothing that we believe theologically after having studied the book of Revelation that we did not already believe by the time we get to the book of Revelation. There are no new, new theological ideas that do not appear previously in the New Testament and most of what we find in the book of Revelation goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So what we find in the book of Revelation is not new theology. What we find in the book of Revelation is new imagery. New Testament scholar Richard Balcom says that the primary feature of the book of Revelation is the vivid counter imagery 
that it provides the other the early church. That is, Revelation doesn't provide new theology. What it does is it projects that theology that's consistent throughout the Old and New Testaments upon a wide screen in 6K. It's theology in living color. That's really what the book of Revelation was. And the reason why the imagery that the book of Revelation presents was so important to the life of the early church is because the early church was squeaking out its existence in the midst of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, just like every empire, communicated to its subjects an all-encompassing vision of reality. And it provided this all-encompassing vision not just through the words of its law, but through multiple forms of pervasive imagery, its architecture, its iconography, its statues, its rituals, and its festivals, and all of the visually stimulating displays of the temple, the temples all over the Roman Empire, were all carefully designed to communicate the ultimacy and the essentiality of Roman power. If you were able to go to some of the temples back in, in the Roman Empire, you would find visually rich multimedia displays. Uh, matter of fact, they would do things like they would have somebody uh, standing in strategic places uh, speaking so that it appeared that the statues were speaking. Uh, they would have false light in certain places so that things would appear differently uh, than they were. It was a lot of theater, a lot of pagan religious theater going on. But the direction that the pagan religious theater was pointing was towards the ultimacy of the state. So you see this partnership between pagan religion in Rome and the state of Rome. And the job of religion was to direct the attention, loyalty, and allegiance of the people toward the state. And so there was this imagery that the people of the early church were bombarded with that was designed, expertly designed, to direct their attention and allegiance toward the essentiality of the empire of Rome. And the imagery was very effective. It was very powerful. And so what the book of Revelation provides is counter-imagery. And it's counter-imagery. Every image in the book of Revelation ultimately was designed by God, by Jesus, to undo and overcome some primary image of the Roman Empire. That is, the images that we find in the book of Revelation are designed to direct our attention and our allegiance toward the throne in heaven and toward the Lamb. So the images in Rome were designed to direct your attention and allegiance towards Caesar. But the images in the book of Revelation are designed to direct your attention and allegiance towards the throne in heaven and towards the Lamb. We, we've seen this already in the Bible. If you go back to the book of Exodus and you look at, 
you ask the question, why did God send 10 plagues on Egypt? God could have just broke Pharaoh's heart. He could have just woke up one morning with an inexplicable desire to let Israel go. And, and God could have just delivered Israel that day. But instead, God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he cannot let Israel go. Even if he wanted to let Israel go, he couldn't let Israel go. Why? Because God needed the time to release his 10 plagues. But when you go back and look at each of the 10 plagues, each one of the 10 plagues was directed at one of the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians worshiped the Nile. The first plague, the Nile turns to blood. It's a sign that God has just killed the Nile God and bled him out. Right? The Egyptians, they had, um, they, you know, they had, they had a, a, an idol in the form of a frog that they worshipped. God sends a plague of frogs. Um, they worshipped the sun, Ra. God turns the sun to darkness. He just killed Ra. And they believed Pharaoh to be the son of Ra. And God kills Pharaoh's firstborn son. He kills the son of the son of Ra. And so in every one of the ten plagues, God is addressing one of the gods of Egypt and putting him to death. So what God is doing in each of the ten plagues is providing Israel with counter-imagery. He's saying, you've seen the Egyptians bowing down to the god of the Nile. I'm going to give you a new image. The Nile is dead. I've put that god to death. And so God has a way. He doesn't allow Israel to leave Egypt before he has thoroughly overturned all of the imagery of Egypt. And this is the way the book of Revelation is functioning. God is not simply giving propositional information for the early church to believe. He's giving them a new, all-encompassing vision of reality. He's saying, I know you're living in this area in which everywhere you look, you see the glory of Rome. But I'm going to give you a new set of eyes so that everywhere you look, you see the glory of God. I'm going to give you a new set of eyes. I know you're living in a place where it feels like you live at the mercy of Rome. But I'm going to give you a new set of eyes so that you can see that you're not living at the mercy of Rome. You're living at the mercy of God. Now, one of the most prominent images in the book of Revelation that functions in this way is the image of Jesus as the Lamb. This is the counter-image to Caesar. You see, the Caesars, the emperors of Rome, they were military figures. They were conquerors. They reigned by military might and by taking the lives of those who opposed them. But Jesus appears again and again in Revelation as the Lamb. The Lamb. And the Lamb, not just a Lamb, but the Lamb who has been slain. Which indicates that, yes, he does reign. And we're going to see that here in this passage, just as in chapter 5, he appears in the center of the throne, which means he reigns. Here he appears on Mount Zion, which is actually another symbol of his reign and his authority. But he is the Lamb. On Mount Zion, which means that he reigns not by the power of his military might, but by the power of his sacrifice. There's a, a, an, a Russian story from Ukraine, I believe, 
about a Russian prince who was riding on a sled with his servant and they were being chased by a pack of wolves and they were running as fast as they possibly could run their dogs but the wolves kept gaining on them and gaining on them and gaining on them and it got to a point at which they became aware of the fact that they were not going to be able to outrun the wolves that they would be overtaken momentarily and out of great love the servant threw himself off of the back of the sled surrendering his life to the power of the wolves so that his master the prince could get away and escape with his life and i read somewhere that someone told that story and said that is the picture of the gospel and someone responded and said no that is not the picture of the gospel because if it were a picture of the gospel the prince would have thrown himself off the sled to rescue the servant you see jesus is the prince of heaven who throws himself to the power of the dogs so that his slaves may live so that his servants may live he reigns because he gave his life for all of us over whom he reigns and it's unheard of in any kingdom of the world for a king to reign by the power of his sacrifice to reign because he gave his life for his servants he appears as the lamb the lamb standing on mount zion <clears throat> now the imagery is shifting here because if you go back to revelation 5 the vision is of heaven but now here in revelation 14 the vision is of the earth in revelation 5 he's standing in the throne room in the middle of the throne surrounded by the 24 elders and the four living creatures and all of the angels right but now he's standing on mount zion now the lamb who was standing in the center of the throne is now standing upon the earth now this image takes us all the way back to psalm chapter 2 of the lamb on mount zion the king on mount zion it goes back to chapter 2 and chapter 2 of the book of psalms that is psalms chapter 2 is a messianic psalm and it's perhaps the premier messianic psalm It's an Old Testament attestation to the coming of Jesus. And what we see here in Psalm chapter 2 is that the nations are raging and it's this this is perhaps the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it says, "Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing?" The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord. and against his anointed let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us and verse 4 says he who sits in the heavens shall laugh so this picture of god sitting on the throne in heaven and the nations are raging and conspiring against him and god is just sitting on his throne just laughing <laughs> that they think from down there they can overthrow me up here they really think they can escape me when i'm up here and they're down there god is just laughing and then it says the lord shall hold them in derision then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his displeasure and what does he say in verse 6 of psalm chapter 2 i have installed my king on zion 
my holy hill. God's answer to the rebellion of the nations is that he has installed his king on Mount Zion. God says, here's my response to your rebellion. I put my king on Mount Zion. Here in Revelation chapter 14, Jesus appears as the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. He is the king who has been installed upon Mount Zion. The, the lamb is the king who has been installed upon Mount Zion. In Revelation chapter 5, he is installed in the center of the throne, in the middle of the throne, which means that he welds all of the power and authority of heaven. But now he is installed on Mount Zion, which means that he is pressing into the earth with all of his power and authority, all of the power and authority from heaven. Now the lamb is pressing into the earth with that power and authority. Here's what this image says. It looks like Caesar is winning, but the lamb is winning. It looks like the, the Roman Empire is everything, but the kingdom of the lamb is everything. It looks like Roman authority is what you have to live under. No, you live under the authority of the lamb. It does not look like it in the natural, but the lamb even now is on Mount Zion, and he is pressing into the earth with all of the authority of the kingdom of heaven. The vision means that Jesus has come to reign. And the invitation is to lift up our eyes above earthly kingdoms. Lift up our eyes above the, above, above the kings of the earth. Lift up our eyes above political systems. Lift up our eyes above political upheavals. Lift up our eyes above the chaos that's happening in the earth. The Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. He has come to reign. And he is the answer to the rebellion of the nations. He is the answer to every injustice. He is the answer to every power of deception. And he will overthrow every nation that rebels against him. The psalm goes on to say, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This passage of scripture prepares us for the eventuality that we will be hated by all nations for his name's sake. And this is a promise. This is a promise. Jesus said it to his disciples. You will be hated by all nations for my, my name's sake. The book of Revelation is designed to prepare us for the eventuality that we will be hated by all nations for his name's sake. But we are prepared for that eventuality with the image of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, remember, wherever Jesus appears in the book of Revelation, the church appears with him. And here's the church, the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, the 144,000. Look at that again. 
The 144,000 represents the church. Is this a literal number? No, it's not a literal number. I've talked to some people who get scared whenever they read this number because they think, man, that's a small amount of people compared to the 7 billion people on the planet. If only 144,000 are going to be saved, I'm probably not going to be in that number. And if you ever have ever had that worry, you can rest assured it's not a literal number. It is symbolic of the totality of all who will believe. The number is symbolic both of the limited number of those who believe, that is, there will be a definite limited number of those who believe, but also the vastness of the number who will believe. In other places, the number of those who believe appear in heaven as an uncountable multitude, a multitude that no one can count out of every tongue, every tribe, every kindred, and every nation. But on the earth, it's a limited number. But if you look at the number, 144,000, 12 is the number of Israel. And so if there were 12 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, that would represent all of Israel. But the number is 12 times 10 times 10 times 10, which speaks of the exponential increase of the harvest of Israel. Right? So don't be scared. Don't be afraid because of the smallness of the number. The only cause to fear is if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The only crisis in the book of Revelation, and I've said this multiple times, is the refusal to repent. That's the only crisis. But then he gives some characteristics of the 144,000, and, and uh, I'm going to go through these one by one. The characteristics of the 144,000. Number one, they have the Father's name and the name of the Lamb written on their foreheads. Number two, they sing a new song that the world cannot learn. Number three, they're redeemed from the earth. Number four, they are undefiled virgins. And number five, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Okay, let's break down each of those because these are very, very important. I think it's so powerful that in every place Jesus appears, the church appears throughout the book of Revelation. We are always with him, going all the way back to the beginning. He's the Son of Man standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, the church, right? Even in Revelation 5, he's standing in the middle of the throne and around him the 24 elders, the church, right? Revelation 12, uh, the woman, uh, the child born of the woman, the woman is the church. And now here we are in Revelation 14, the church, the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and the church is the 144,000. <clears> All right. Number one, they've got the name of the lamb and the father's name written on their foreheads. This is very, very important because what we find uh, in chapter 13 is this character that the book of Revelation refers to as the beast appears for the first time in Revelation 13. He's mentioned in, in chapter 11 as the beast who will ascend out of the bottomless pit. But then in chapter 13, what you actually see is the beast is twofold. There's actually two beasts who appeared. What, what we want to talk about for just a moment is the mark of the beast, because a lot of people have asked me, what is the mark of the beast? And actually, when I asked for questions, uh, that was a specific question that someone asked. What is the mark of the beast? We see Revelation chapter 13, verse 18 that the, the mark of the beast is the number six, six well, the number 666 six, six is the number of the beast. Um, 
But in Revelation 13, 16, the scripture says he causes all, the beast that is, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Here's the thing that you need to understand. The, there's three characters, really. The dragon that we met in chapter 12. And then you get to chapter 13. And there's a beast that comes out of the sea. And then in chapter 13, verse 11, there's a beast that emerges out of the earth. And this is a satanic trinity. Which means that they are mimicking God. They are wanting to usurp the authority of God. And to present themselves as, have, as, as really to deceive the people into worshiping this satanic trinity rather than worshiping God. And so everything that the beast does, the dragon does, is mimicking something that God does. This is very, very important. Just like Pharaoh's magicians who mimicked the miracles of Moses. This is the power. This is really what deception is. When Satan does something to mimic something that God does for the purpose of deception. Scripture says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. This is deception. When the enemy can convince you that something he's doing is actually something that God is doing. That's deception, mimicry. Now, in Revelation 13, the beast of the earth causes people to take a mark on their foreheads. In Revelation 14, the lamb causes the 144,000 to take a mark on their foreheads. So if we start with what the lamb does, then we can understand why the beast mimics it in this way. Now, the name of the lamb and the name of the father is written on the foreheads of those who stand with the lamb on Mount Zion. And what's that all about? What's, what's the name all about? It's a mark of ownership. If even today, if you were to get somebody's name tattooed on your forehead, they got you. <laughs> you know, you see guys who, who get the names of their girlfriends tattooed on them and then they break up, you know, and then they got to try to get it removed. When you put somebody's name on your body, it's a symbol of ownership. Is it a literal mark that the 144,000 have on their foreheads? No. It's a symbol of the fact that they have embraced the ownership of the Father and of the Lamb. That they belong to the Lamb. So in order to understand the mark of the beast, we must first understand the mark of the Lamb. Is it a literal mark that the Lamb gives to those who stand with them on, on Mount Zion? No. So then we can conclude that the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, 16 is not a literal mark either. It symbolizes the fact that they embrace the ownership of the beast. They belong to the beast as much as the 144,000 belong to the lamb. Okay? So they've got the father's name, the 144,000, they've got the father's name written on their foreheads. They belong to the father. They belong to the Lamb. The first mark, and this is speaking to each and every one of us, we must embrace the fact that we belong to God. We must embrace His mark upon our foreheads. And how do you avoid the mark of the beast? you got to take the mark of the Lamb. 
If you take the mark of the lamb, you don't have to fear the mark of the beast. Secondly, it says, they sing a song that the world could not learn. Now, in order to understand this song, we've got to jump over to chapter 15. And uh, as I said before, these two visions, the vision of chapter 14, of 1 through 4, and chapter 15, uh, 1 through 4, 14, 1 through 5, and 15, 1 through 4, are happening simultaneously. So look, um, let's see if I can show you this. Look at... Uh, Yeah, verse 2 here. So he sees the lamb standing on Mount Zion, the 144,000 having the Father's name written on their foreheads. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters. He doesn't tell what the voice says. And like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. We don't know who the harpists are. And then it says, verse 3, They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. So now he's hearing... He's on the earth looking at Mount Zion, seeing the lamb and the 144,000. But then in heaven, he's hearing harpists playing their harps. And then he's hearing them singing before the throne in heaven. He's hearing a new song being played, being sung to the accompaniment of harps before the throne of God in heaven. Right? And then it says, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So you see that? He hears this song coming from heaven to the accompaniment of harps. And then the 144,000 is able to learn the song and sing with the heavenly chorus that's singing. All right? Now, if we go over to chapter 15, we'll see he sees, whoops, sorry. He sees the heavenly manifestation. He sees what's happening in heaven all of a sudden when he gets to 15 that's happening concurrently with what he was seeing in chapter 14. He says, and I saw something like the sea of glass. Remember, we saw this in Revelation chapter 5, that before the throne was a sea of glass. And we said that, that the sea represents all of the chaos of the earth. And all of the chaos of the earth is right there before the throne of God. So now he sees this sea of glass mingled with fire. It has to do with, with uh, tribulation and chaos in the earth. And standing in the midst of the sea of glass and fire is those who have the victory over the beast over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. So who are these people? They're the same people as the 144,000. But this is the church in heaven, and the 144,000 is the church on earth, but it's one church. There's one worship service going on. And who's leading that worship service? Look at this. They're standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. The harps that he hears in chapter 14... He sees in chapter 15. It's the redeemed standing, in, but, but where they're standing before the throne of God, but where in the glassy sea, which represents the chaos of the earth. So they're standing in the midst of the chaos of the earth in the throne room before the throne of God with harps. And they're singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And then the 144,000 in chapter 14 are hearing the harps and the song from the earth, and they're learning the song. And they're singing the song with, uh, with the multitude in heaven. I wish I could look into your eyes today because I don't know if, is this obscure? Am I going right over your head? Are you getting this? Uh, man, it's hard just preaching to a camera. I can't wait till we can get back to meeting live so I could look into your eyes and know 
if this is coming through or not. Okay, I'm just going to press through. Let's go. Uh, let me know. Let me know if you're getting this. So they're singing the song of Moses. They're singing this. So here's what's interesting. In chapter 14, he says they sang a new song. He hears this voice from heaven. And it's the voice of this multitude of the redeemed. And they're singing a new song, he says in chapter 14. But then you get to chapter 15, and the song they're actually singing is an old song. The song of Moses. And this is the song, Great and Marvelous Are Your Works. Let's, let's look at that song. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. All right. So the first feature that I notice about this song is that there's nothing new about it at all. I mean, how is this a new song when it starts with marvelous are your works? David said that in Psalm 139 verse 14, just and true are your ways. Goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth without injustice. Or how about the image of him as the king of the saints goes back to Daniel chapter 7. Who shall not fear you goes back to Exodus chapter 15, which was the song of Moses. Um, you know, I mean, I could go on and on. Every line of this song goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So why call it a new song when it's actually an old song? At best, it's a remix, right? So remember, the book of Revelation does not teach us anything theologically new. It shows us something visually new. This is, this is theology in living color. The redeemed sing the song from two locations on Mount Zion where they are worshiping and reigning with the Lamb and in the sea of glass where they are wrestling with the beast. They're standing on Mount Zion where they're reigning with the Lamb and they're also standing in the sea of glass where they are wrestling with the beast. Now remember, uh, chapter 15 tells us that those who stood in the sea of glass singing the song were those who have victory over the beast. Let's look at this again. Okay, I thought we could look at it again. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. Do you see the restatement and the emphasis upon their victory over the beast? Those who have victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. So the song is sung by those who have victory over the beast. Now, as I stated before, there's two beasts. This is important. There's two beasts in Revelation 13, one from the sea and one from the land. In the Old Testament, there were also two beasts. Leviathan came from the sea. Behemoth came from the land. And both beasts in the Old Testament represented oppression against God, against his kingdom, and against his people. The beast of the sea, we find here in the book of Revelation, represents 
represents political powers throughout history. It has seven heads, which are authorities and kingdoms, and ten horns, all the political and military might of the history of the earth. The clear message of the book of Revelation is that earthly political systems always move towards corruption and idolatry. You hear that? The clear message of the book of Revelation is that earthly political systems always move towards corruption and idolatry. Why? Because they have come under the sway of the dragon. You see, remember in Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is angry because he could not devour the child, and so he pursues the woman. But the dragon does not pursue the woman directly, but he does so through the beast of the sea, which represents political powers, and through the beast of the earth. Beast 1 and Beast 2. And what we discover is that the beast of the earth represents religious systems of the world. You see, what we find with the earth beast, if you look at Revelation chapter 13, is that the job of the beast of the earth was to create signs and wonders that direct people's allegiance toward the beast of the sea. Right? Daryl Johnson says the earth beast is the propagandist of the sea beast. The role of the second beast then is to do whatever it takes to manipulate people into trusting and following political power that has moved out from under God. The earth beast mimics Jesus having two horns like a lamb, but he has a voice like a dragon. He does not speak like a lamb. He speaks like a dragon. Okay, I don't have time to get deep into these beasts. I'm going to move on. I think I, I need to do, we need to have time to talk about these beasts because it's, it's really important, but we'll come back to it. Let's go on. I said that there are five characteristics to the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. First, they've got the Father's name written on their foreheads. Second, they sing a song that the world cannot learn. Third, they're redeemed from the earth. Fourth, they're undefiled virgins. No deceit is found in them and they're faultless before God. And fifth, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Okay, so they sing the song, the song that they hear from heaven. Number three, they're redeemed. They're redeemed from the earth. Uh, and this is so important. Redemption means to buy back a slave. In the ancient world, if you had a debt that you couldn't pay, you would be sold into slavery. But if you were sold into slavery, someone could buy you back. If you had a debt, for instance, your debt collector could come to your house, and if you couldn't pay the debt, he could take one of your children as his slave. But what you could do is if you could somehow go out, go out and find the money necessary to pay off the debt, you could go and redeem your child from the debtor, from the debt collector. This is what Jesus does. He redeems us. Sin was a debt that was too big for us to pay, and so he redeems us. But this is very important. This is encouraging because in a minute it's going to say that they were virgins, which might lead us to conclude that they had never sinned before or that they had never sinned in any grievous way. A lot of people read this 144,000 thing and think I can't be in that number because I've already sinned too grievously against God. I'm not a virgin, I'm not chaste. I, you know, I, I've, I've messed up in too many ways. I'm not in this number. Stuff has fallen apart in my office. <laughs> you like the new setup, by the way? 
my I have a, an acoustic blanket that just fell off the wall. So now all of a sudden it's probably sounding much more echoey, echoey than it was before. But here's the beautiful thing. Before it tells us that they're celibate, it tells us that they were redeemed. You see, if you were never a slave, you would not need to be redeemed. The fact that they were redeemed means that they were once enslaved by sin, but Jesus redeemed them by laying down his life. And the next it says they were virgins. It's metaphorical. They were celibate, it says. Another translation. It's metaphorical. You see, the whole, the, the grand image of the book of Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church, the people of God is the bride, and Jesus is the Lamb. And there's going to be this marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of Revelation where Jesus comes to take his bride as his very own. And the chastity of the bride, the celibacy of the, la- of the bride, is in our refusal to bow to idolatry. Idolatry is the adultery of which is spoken of in the book of Revelation. Matter of fact, later in the book of Revelation, we're going to meet the great harlot who makes all the nations drink the wine of her adulteries. Newsflash, she's not a literal woman or a literal harlot, and the wine of her adultery is not just sexual sin. You see, our celibacy is in our waiting upon the coming of the Lamb. And the consummation is this vision in in Revelation 21 of the church as the new Jerusalem adorned as a bride prepared for her husband. The redeemed are not caught up in the bed with Babylon, the great harlot. They don't worship the empire. Their allegiance is not to Caesar. They have been redeemed, redeemed from the empire, redeemed from Caesar, redeemed from sin, and they belong to the land, the the lamb. And then finally, it says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. That means that they're Psalm 23 Christians. The Lord is my shepherd. The 144,000 say, the lamb is my shepherd. I shall not want. And even though I'm living in the midst of an empire that is hostile to the lamb and his gospel, the lamb is my shepherd and I shall not want. You know, at the end of the day, regardless of all of the chaos and all of the upheavals of history, If the lamb is your shepherd, you have nothing to fear. And a quick way to determine whether or not the lamb is your shepherd, simple, do you follow him? You see, your shepherd is whoever you follow. It says here that they follow the lamb wherever he goes, even when he goes to the cross. You remember what John said? In his first epistle, 1 John 4, um, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. John, when he said that, he was speaking autobiographically. Because you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was taken and the the disciples were scattered and they followed from afar, Peter punked out in the courtyard and said, I never knew the man and then ran and wept bitterly when he looked into the eyes of Jesus, betrayed him, denied him three times. Everyone else scattered, but when you come to the cross where Jesus is there hanging between earth and heaven with nails in his hands and feet and a crown of thorns upon his head, do you know who's there? One disciple, John. And the question is, what gave John the boldness to follow Jesus all the way to the cross when all the rest of the disciples scattered in fear? You know what gave John the boldness? 
You know what John was called? John the Beloved. They called him the disciple whom Jesus loved. At the end of the day, John had less fear because he had more love, which simply means he walked closer to Jesus than the other disciples. Matter of fact, it would say that, you know, in, in, the, in the way they would eat in ancient Israel is they would lay, you'd lean on your left arm and you would lay your head on the chest of the person behind you. So imagine 13 guys, Jesus in the middle, and each one is laying their head on the person behind them. John would be the one who would lay his head on the chest of Jesus. And you would take food with your right hand and you would put it into the mouth of the person behind you. John lays his head on the chest of Jesus, puts food into the mouth of Jesus. When John said, perfect love drives out all fear, he was speaking autobiographically. He was saying, what gave me the boldness to follow Jesus all the way to the cross, not fearing for my life, was love. These 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, they simply, they don't have more boldness, they've just got more love. Love, at the end of the day, At the end of the day, when Jesus becomes your one, all-encompassing love, you'll have no more fear. I'm going to invite my wife to come. And we're going to pray for you today. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask <clears throat> the Lord Jesus to clarify the words that I've spoken today. This is one of those moments in which I feel like I have not been clear. One of those moments in which I know that this is a word from the Lord, but I also know that there are demonic forces arrayed against this word. I felt it strongly last night as I was preparing. But that also means that there's more breakthrough than I'm able to sense, and I'm able to see. God is calling us to be in that number that stands with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we come to you today. Come on in, baby. Actually, I'm going to hand it over to you, baby. Why don't you, why don't you lead us in prayer? <laughs> okay. Um... Yeah, Father, we thank you that you've shown us this imagery of our Jesus, who is the Lamb. And Father, I just hear your voice saying, receive the mark of the Lamb, not of the beast. And those of us that have already received the mark of the Lamb, Father, we pray that you would empower us as those that follow you wherever you go to act as those that bear the, the mark of the Lamb. God, the, this world in this age, we're so confused, Lord. And often those that are with the mark of the Lamb are acting as if they have the mark of the beast. 
So Father, we ask in Jesus' name today to all those that are joining us online, Father, those that do not, that have not received the mark of the Lamb, to open their eyes, God, to open their hearts to receive Jesus and to receive the mark of the Lamb that will protect them from coming wrath of God. So right now, Lord, we ask that you would save souls open hearts to receive the mark of the Lamb. And those that have already said yes to you, empower us, Lord, to live as those that have the mark of the Lamb. Father, remove the confusion of the enemy, Lord. Father, we ask, let there be an empowerment today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You know, I just want to share one Thing really quickly before we end and we will end very shortly as this is what we've been hearing that there's there's two realities right now one is that God the Lamb of God our Savior our King is standing with us with an impending manifestation of his promises and his will and his plan for you and me for our nation for this world for his kingdom to advance. There's an impending promises of God to empower you and to bless you and so that you would thrive even now as you bear the mark of the Lamb. But there's also the impending promise of demons. Satan also stands before you with an impending promise. There's God's promise, there's demons promise. And he is saying, I will attack you I see so many people that bear the Lamb of God being confused because they're focused on the promise of demon that says, I'm about to attack you. I'm about to bring division in your, in, in your relationships. I'm about to uh, uh, touch your body with sickness that you cannot fight off. There's an impending promise of demons. And all, almost like in a deceiving way, trying to deceive the people of God. You need to do what I say. You need to receive my mark or else you're going to have to deal with sickness, division, blah, blah, blah. But I want to empower you today that as you heard today's word, that you bear the mark of the Lamb, which means God wants you to Shift your focus from the promises of demons, the attacks of the enemy, and set your eyes and your hearts on the promises of God. Because all his promises are for those that bear his mark. So I just want to encourage you, if you bear the mark of the Lamb, do not fear the lies, the attacks, pain, sickness, whatever you see. But if you have not received the mark of the Lamb, we urge you today to open your hearts to Jesus. Open your hearts to Jesus. God, I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid. What is this world coming to? What is this world coming to? If you're that person, I want you to, I want you to open your hearts right now and say, God, mark me with your mark. God, I want, I want to see what you see. I want to live according to your ways. I open my heart to you, God. Mark me with your mark. I want you to pray that prayer. 
And if you have prayed that prayer, if you have opened your hearts to God, I want you to say, I pray the prayer. Pray for me. Pray for me. And we will pray for you. Amen.